0: Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Hayley Hill and I'll be in the hot seat today. I'm a senior associate solicitor in our workplace illness team and I support clients and their legal claims to seek compensation for asbestos-related illnesses that they've developed, primarily as a result of working with asbestos. Today we're joined by Sue Ryder to talk about bereavement, grief and the support that's available to help. I'm delighted to welcome Bianca Newman, who's Head of Bereavement for Sue Ryder. Bianca is a healthcare professional and experienced psychologist and hypnotherapist with a demonstrated history of working in the hospice, hospital, and healthcare industry.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: We're also joined by our client, Andrew Plant, who sadly lost his dad to mesothelioma. Thank you for joining us today, Andrew.
2: Hi there, pleasure to be here.
0: Also with us today is Jackie Bates, who works at Irwin Mitchell as a client support manager. Jackie is a qualified social worker. Her role is to provide practical and emotional support to our clients as and when they need it during their legal claim. And she also supports families through the early stages of bereavement as a result of mesothelioma or other occupational disease. Hi Haley. it's great to be here, thank you. Thanks Jackie. Bianca, if I may come to you first, could you please talk us through what might be recognised as signs of grief?
1: Thank you, that's quite an interesting question because I think traditionally we think of grief uh, as quite an an openly uh, visible way of engaging with feelings and thoughts. So we would think of someone looking upset, maybe crying with with their posture, their heads um, looking downwards maybe, but actually grief is much more than that. And it's much more complex than that. If you look around yourself, wherever you are, maybe you're on a bus somewhere, that chances are that there's lots of people on this bus grieving right now, um, but you wouldn't normally be able to tell because people have to integrate grief into their day-to-day life, so they don't always look as though they're grieving, because a lot of that process happens inside. Uh, of course, the person who is grieving will experience lots of different ways of experiencing that grief, from the emotional, um, the physical... Uh, It would be around their thoughts and maybe it shows some behaviours. So that might be a a way that we can recognise someone grieving. For example, someone who um, is normally quite bubbly at work, um, might be less so, might be more inward and more quiet than usual. Um, Maybe someone who's normally quite relaxed about a lot of things suddenly comes across very stressed and and maybe very short-tempered. Some people might become really withdrawn, so they are less sociable than usual. So it's really um, acknowledging and noticing those differences in the people as we know them, that shows that they're grieving. Um, Some people don't show any signs of grief at all. And some people show signs of grief that might be um, less common or less commonly acknowledged in society, such as a sense of relief that someone has died, or maybe just being able to move on, maybe starting um, dating again when someone has died, because maybe they have been grieving in an anticipatory way before that person has actually died. So grief is very individual, and the way that it comes out and is observable is equally as uh, individual. Thank you. Jackie,
0: if I can bring you in, we often talk about grief as a result of bereavement, but would it be right to suggest that grief isn't really only experienced as a result of bereavement, but people can suffer it following other forms of loss?
3: Yes, absolutely, Hayley. Um We do usually associate grief with the death of the loved one, um, which is the cause for the most intense types of grief. But of course, any loss can cause grief. Um, so, for example, divorce or a relationship breakup, the loss of a job, you may become redundant, loss of financial security, a miscarriage, retirement, you can lose your sense of purpose and your sense of self-worth, the death of a pet. For some people, their pets are their closest companion, and, it, and it's a tragedy for them. You can lose friendships, you can lose safety, your feelings of safety after experiencing a trauma. So, for example, if you're assaulted or there's domestic abuse, and of course, The loss of your health. So, I work mainly with clients who have a life limiting illness, and the diagnosis is usually really unexpected and overwhelming for them. And they have to face their own mortality. And I think as health declines, people become more reliant on others, so they can feel like they're losing their independence. And they can be grieving the loss of their future and what they expected to happen, what they planned to happen. Perhaps they have a partner. So, you know, they may have planned to do a round the world trip they expected to see their grandchildren grow up or to be honest you know I've got a couple of clients who have young children themselves and they're not going to see their children grow up so you know loss is about
0: all sorts of things isn't it it's it's not just about bereavement thanks Jackie before I come to Andrew Bianca you mentioned anticipatory grief could you just explain a little bit more what that is and and what it might look like for people
1: yeah sure So when um, someone who's close to us is diagnosed with a life-limiting disease or changes because of a disease, we often have very strong reactions to that because of the relationship that we have with that person also being affected. So for example, as someone is getting one more sick or maybe loses certain aspects of their life. uh, For example, um, I had clients who were saying, as the um, disease progressed, the person with the disease stopped wanting to go out and they used to always go out for meals. Um, And so the person looking after um, or being with that person with the disease um, suddenly found themselves being in the house more, which meant that a really big aspect of their relationship started to go missing. And as um, the disease progresses and people coming to the end of their life, these losses that uh, Jackie also talked about, they become bigger and and, uh, start to really shape and change the people's lives um, quite significantly. And in that, they start to grieve for those losses that they're experiencing along the way. All these small bits that suddenly get dropped off from their world are taken away from the map as they knew it um, Will then be experienced, which means that when it comes to the actual death of the person, there already has been a lot of grief Uh, experienced by the people and often clients say that that really helped them when it actually came to the time of death to then go into the actual grief for the person who's died because they've done a lot of hard work beforehand already and also projected okay if the situation is like this now what will happen when they're actually dead so they already had the ability and opportunity to experiment with those thoughts that we normally don't engage with on a day-to-day basis.
3: I think that's that's really true, actually. And I remember um, my mum was a very heavy smoker, and I just I just knew that I was going to lose her through um, you know smoking-related illness and i remember like a year before she died i remember her coughing a lot and i just had a feeling and i just spent the next year just sort of almost preparing myself imagining what it would be to not have her in my life anymore and and i was right She, she did get lung cancer but um but yes you do you you prepare don't you you imagine what it's like to not have that person anymore
0: and andrew if i could bring you in um would you mind telling us about how you and your family dealt with your dad's mesothelioma diagnosis and receiving that news that his illness was incurable did you have particular coping mechanisms
2: i, I think the biggest shock when when it comes to any sort of news like this it's the uh, you you get so used to familiarity with things. You you always think throughout life, what whether it's a trivial thing or a big thing, everything is stable. It's just going to be there forever. Nothing is going to happen. When you suddenly realize things are about to change, it is, we were saying earlier, the grief can actually start before the grief even hits, because you are sort of preparing yourself for it. you, you know what's coming. And I wouldn't say it's defeatist, but you know there's nothing you can do to stop it as well so you go into sort of a, a well I personally I went into a very strange almost like an autopilot of trying to prepare for it but I don't think anybody really can prepare it's just you just sort of try, start trying to weigh things up in your head about how, how to deal with it I think one of the biggest things it's the day-to-day trivial things when you know someone's going especially with mesothelioma, where things like difficulties in talking comes along and you just say oh I, I really want to just sort of give my dad a call sort of say that's and you suddenly realize you actually can't do that in those same sort of ways i i think when, when you when you get a diagnosis like that or any sort of diagnosis your, your whole world sort of just suddenly flips on its head that day
1: and
0: do you mind me bringing in because i know we've had conversations about it that you had a really good relationship with your dad, and were quite able to be open and honest with him. And, oh yes. And am I, yes. Am I right in thinking that sometimes that sort of dark humour comes in? That that how we're going to get through this is a little bit by joking or 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 being funny about it, having some some it, funny it, moments.
2: It helps a lot within well within my entire family. Yeah, you know, we, we do have a very dark sense of humour, so we weren't seeing it as finality we were sort of trying to make as light of it as possible without sort of being dismissive of what was coming we were just myself personally i found I thought it'd be quite easy to slip into a oh dear what am i going to do sort of mode so we tried to and my dad was saying he said well i haven't gone yet so we were sort of trying to keep it as upbeat and positive and everything as possible sort of yeah and and jokes almost you sort of you And it it helped. It it definitely helped with that sort of approach.
0: Bianca, do you find that that is something that's quite common in how people deal with that anticipation of of losing a loved one?
1: Some people do. Um, In my experience, there's also another side to it where a lot of pressure seems to be building up for people getting everything in order or trying to quickly fix relationships that have been very complicated for years, maybe for a lifetime, and, and trying to create this um, picture book death for and with that person who's dying, because that's how, you know, films and, uh, and, and is teaching us it should look like, people by, by your side, holding your hand and saying I love you, when a lot of relationships aren't like that. And so trying to maybe having those very deep conversations, tidying up the past, are uh, wanted from one side um, within a relationship and maybe the person who's dying isn't really interested in, in fixing or trying to find some kind of resolution for a long lasting conflict or um, difficulties between people. So uh, that then of course, means the anticipatory grief is, is complicated. And, and difficult because it doesn't work with how we want to see the world and maybe how we feel we find we can find peace or a sense of meaning in death uh, when those two um, when it, the expected world doesn't really work with the real world so yes there there's ways with uh, how people go about it um, humor um, some people also don't want to engage with death, dying, bereavement at all, because um, there's this thing called terror management theory. And what it poses is that when we are um, faced with the end of one's life, we engage with behaviors that keep all of that way of thinking at bay, because it's scary. um, It means lots of uncertainty, lots of very, very strong emotions and, and difficult thoughts. And so a lot of people do the head in the sand thing where they just don't want to know. They're just, you know, some people who are dying even don't want to engage with I'm dying even until they take their last breaths because they're still in their mindset, not ready for it. And so are their relatives. Um, And and again, this is a a different uh, way of uh, engaging with grief before it actually happens for the person who's dying.
0: Thank you. So, Jackie, did you want to offer a comment on that? Yes, I was, I was just thinking
3: back um, a long time ago when I first started social work, my placement was in a hospice. So I, I was a student there, so I had a bit more time and I was able to spend more time with the patients. And there was one particular gentleman and they all said he's turned his head to the wall. He wouldn't engage, he wouldn't talk to anybody, he wouldn't eat, he just didn't want to know. And I um, I went and sat with him and he asked me to um, get some photographs out of his bedside cabinet. And um, we spent about an hour going through all these old photographs. There were some pictures from the war and it was basically a sort of review of his life. And it was a, I'll never, ever forget that experience. He, he He did actually
0: die the next day. It was like he was doing that review and saying goodbye. And then he left us. Andrew, if I could just bring you back in, if you don't mind speaking about it, we, we talked about different forms of loss earlier and, and Jackie um, very eloquently talked about where we might experience different forms of loss. And I know that in addition to your extremely sad situation with your dad, you've also had a really difficult situation with, with your mum and, and she's had a diagnosis of dementia some time ago, but things are have been particularly difficult for her. Do you recognise that sort of loss that it's experienced, even though you haven't lost your mum because of perhaps a change in personality or her deterioration?
2: To be absolutely honest, it didn't dawn on me at first what was going on with the dementia. And yes, I I can now fully understand that dementia is a type of loss and grief as well, because the person you're talking to, they look the same, they sound the same, everything is the same, but there's a... things, things have gone from there. So that they're not. So even though they look the same, sound the same, they're not the same anymore. And when you're trying to explain things to them, things just— to my mum, things just don't register. And it—it's. It, I wouldn't say they become a shell, but they become. Um, I, I don't know how you describe it. It's you you're trying to reformulate a life for them that has has gone to try and make things make sense so sort of explaining where dad has gone and that sort of thing but then you you've also got to start explaining who dad was so you suddenly realize there are all these great big holes so yes that that there is a loss there and even going to see her and sort of you have to rem- i have to remind her who i am but it didn't dawn on me at first that it was a loss
3: but I, I used to work um, a lot with dementia clients and their families, and um, often people would describe it as a living death. The person that they knew and loved, they were still there, they looked like them, but they weren't them anymore. Their personality completely changed. Someone that you know was once very mild-mannered and gentle and kind, suddenly became quite aggressive and bad tempered. And I think it's 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 a a very distressing situation, Um, you know, especially, you know, there have been circumstances where um, I said a husband and wife, the husband's got dementia and he started to become really aggressive towards his wife. Um, So it's 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 very, very sad.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Um, Bianca, if I can come to you Ways that we can look to support people who are grieving, who who will be going through many, many different forms of grief. Where do we start? What what should we be looking to do to help people?
1: I think the first and probably hardest but most important thing to do is to be there. And I don't just mean sending a card that says thinking of you, signing your name, maybe with a kiss and then not being in touch anymore. It, it's about knowing that if you want to, if you're really interested in supporting someone, you've got to be in it 100% and with with whatever you can. So some people are really good at making meals, then you can be the making meals person and drop them off. If, you're, if you have a car and you can take kids to school to take the burden of the school run, for example, chuck that in, offer that, you know, make make some real practical suggestions of things that you can do. Do you want to take their washing and wash it for them? Do those kinds of things. People need that because chores are hard work when you're grieving and when you live with anticipatory grief as well. But ultimately, understand that engaging with someone and their grief means that you have to be able to tolerate distress. So, feeling uncomfortable within yourself, having those conversations, being and sharing that space with someone who's um, emotional, who might not want to move on right away or for a long time. These are things that you have to hold in there. And I often say to people, it's a bit like um, holding a, a screaming baby, a baby that is non-verbal. So um, you need to hold on to them for as long as it takes as they're screaming. And you need to somehow try and find that inner calm to deal with with that noise that you can't do anything about trying to guess what they might need, trying to offer different ways of support um, without uh, intellectualizing. So just like with a baby, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, I think why you're crying is because you're experiencing something called tiredness. Uh, Let me talk you through a few steps to help with tiredness. You just have to hold them and just just be present for them and with them and until their distress reduces. And with people, you offer them um, practical things Uh, uh, space so they can express what they're going through and and also being realistic about it I'm not going to be here between um, 10 and 12 today but you know because I have other things to do but after that I'm available for you from two to four so again not saying I'm here when you need me but actually being realistic also about when you're available for that need so remembering you can't fix things grief can't be fixed. So don't go in there with your tools and say, hey, I can fix this with you and for you. But just again, being by their side and acknowledging that grief is forever. And that if you are that friend, that colleague, that person for them, that you are available for them for this process, however long it takes. And then being there throughout um, the silences and the stillness Grief doesn't have to be filled with lots of smart words, with uh, lots of counseling type language, it needs to be um, real, and it needs to be true to who that person is to you and how you already have shaped that relationship. So if they want to be quiet, find that level of tolerance in you that sits with that silence, rather than breaking it up and trying to be funny or trying to fill the space with words. And going with their pace as well, because people See the world changing every day, you know. For everyone, it's another day, they're doing fun things, they go on holidays, they have birthdays, they have parties, and for you, your world stopped for quite a significant amount of time. So, sitting with that, and at the same time, acknowledging that people aren't just grievers, they're people who grieve, which means that they're still a friend, they're still a brother, they're still a sister. There's still people with a history and with a future. Uh, They're still funny. They're still all of those things. They're still caring people. So don't just make it about grief. Invite them to share what else goes on in their life because they wanna know what else goes on in your life too. So it's a a bit of a balance. Understand you will get it wrong because we sometimes say things because we can't hold on to that distress inside. We can't tolerate and we say something silly. And most relationships allow for that, for that mistake to take place. So if you say something and the other person is like, but how could you say that? That's okay, you can fix these things because you have a relationship with that person. So this is an invitation to try things as well as a supporter. What helps, what hasn't helped? What can I improve? You know, And then ask, was this helpful? Was this useful? What else could I do to help you?
0: Thank you. So I suppose for me that message is about not being afraid to speak and and perhaps actually those of us that are afraid to say something wrong might be doing more harm than good isn't the right terminology but we actually by trying not to say anything wrong we might move ourselves away from that person and actually not support them in the way they need and actually getting it wrong might be just as powerful because we're there having the conversation, does does that feel about right?
1: Yeah, and and also you know understanding that if you feel uh, maybe you have your own grief to go through, maybe you have a lot of other stress, or maybe you feel like um, the person who's grieving needs something else. So also equip yourself, knowing what you can signpost to. You know, I can be your friend up to here, and then I think you might also want to try this. So. Be a good signpost at the same time as that um, grievous support. Jackie, can I just bring you
3: in there? Just wanted to just pick up on what you just said, because I so many people have said to me that, you know, their friends, they feel like they've abandoned them because I think their friends don't know what to say and they're frightened of saying the wrong thing. And they'll literally cross the road to avoid speaking to that person. And I think people can be very, very lonely with grief. So, yeah. Um, i think that the the you know the, the trick here is to to be there for that person don't be frightened about you know what you're going to say
1: yes that's absolutely true um many of my um, counselors say similar things um, and i have had this in uh, when, when i was practicing as well and i think we also need to um, encourage the grieving person to be active in seeking support and seeking conversations because The griever might think, the grieving person might think, okay, the person has crossed the road because they don't want to talk to me about my grief, but your body language is basically saying, don't talk to me. I don't want to be talked to right now. So, you know, when people live with grief, it's also important to say, can I just talk to you for a bit because I'm having a bit of a griefy day or a griefy moment? And the same at work, you know, can I just talk to you about this? Um, experience I'm having today being at work with my grief so it's I think two parts of responsibility the supporters and the grieving people have have to um, create spaces for these conversations and those interactions.
0: And Andrew have you you found that in losing your dad you you've have siblings I'm sure you have friends and family to assist but have you found that there's people who perhaps a bit afraid to talk to you in case
2: they upset you. I I think it's always that awkward moment when people say, because I I agree with what Bianca said, People and Jackie said, people don't know what to say to you sometimes. So you can put on the bravest face yourself about dealing with it, but you can still feel there's that awkwardness. So I, I tended to break the ice the other way about saying, Let's just go to the pub just for a drink and that, that sort of thing. So to try and put them at ease more. So I'm not sort of trying to offload a burden onto the person, but just say, look, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still Andrew. I'm still, yes, this has happened, but it doesn't ultimately change who I am about things. So I think that it's, it, it's the turning on its head is to put the other person in a slightly more comfortable position. So they don't feel obligated to be, I wouldn't say a shoulder to cry on because you still need that a bit, but you're not, you're not hankering for that. Um, And something else I was thinking of as well, I think it's, it's very easy to try to be the hero with grief as well, trying to take everything on board. And I found it so important to try and see different strengths in different people of areas fields that people can deal with and help with rather than just trying to do it all at once because that's when you become overloaded and can become I wouldn't say a burden on other people but you you if you've got to keep in control of yourself to be able to have the support of the other people that's absolutely
0: right isn't it you you can't end up needing more support than people can give because you you need to look after yourself as well and and, and jackie i think that's something that yeah. you very much advocate for in 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 that self-care element isn't it
3: so i've i've been a um a client support manager for over a year now um but i've been a qualified social worker for about 26 years and um and it's really great i can bring all that experience to this role um it's a job that i i absolutely love and i find really rewarding I work with clients who have asbestos related conditions. Many of them have mesothelioma, which is obviously a life limiting illness. Um, Often the diagnosis is unexpected and overwhelming, and they're worried about how they're going to cope as the disease progresses. So while our lawyers like yourself Haley investigates and manages the case, I'm often asked to get involved, provide the emotional, the psychological and and very practical support. So just just for an example, because it's probably the easiest way to describe what I do. um, I went to see a a, a gentleman with um, mesothelioma and he felt he'd been forgotten about. Um, He hadn't seen his consultant for quite some time. He wasn't in touch with anybody. Um, he also had um, visual impairment. He was registered blind and he had other health related conditions. Um, so I arranged for him to have a sensory loss, low vision assessment. Um, he was also taken out, to do a road safety check so that it gave him more confidence to leave his house. Um, I got an OT assessment done for rails, bathing aids, that sort of thing. Um, I contacted the MISO UK nurse who put him in touch with his local lung nurses and uh, with a view to um, getting him in along to attend coffee mornings and mix with other people that that had mesothelioma. And he also got a face-to-face appointment with his consultant sent to him. And he, he phoned me up and said, I actually feel wanted again. I actually feel like someone cares. And I think, you know, it can be very lonely if you're someone on your own without anyone there supporting you. I think also I just wanted to add that... Um, People hate being told that they need to move on or that they will move on. And I sort of I learned that actually life and death and moments can't just be left behind. I think the person is still present and that you have to move forward with that person rather than moving on and for me I found that quite a comfort really you know I, st- I still miss my mum I still got a bit of a mum shaped hole in me but actually I found that whole sort of idea of not moving on but moving forward with that person a great comfort.
0: Thank you Jackie Um and I'll, before I bring Bianca back in Andrew if you don't mind I just I've had um, first-hand experience of the wonderful support that Jackie provides to to many of, of our clients but also I know that Jackie's been able to support you with some of the many difficulties you've had with with mum and with
2: dad while he was poorly
0: would you mind just telling us a little bit about how you found that experience and and hopefully whether it was oh helpful?
2: yes it it, it, it it was amazing I mean it just I think the, one of the biggest problems especially when de- the actual death arrives is the first thing is you just don't know what to do. It happens, and you're, you're just suddenly left floundering, sort of as to okay, so what happens now? And in the nicest possible way, all the people in the hospital they are they're lovely, but they're used to it. They do see it all the time, and if it if the hospital is busy, you you just become a little bit like a the next one in the queue almost, and so you're you tend to miss that. One-on-one support of okay. Well, what do I do next? Where do we go from here? What what happens? So, when I was put in touch with Jackie, I mean, it, the the wealth of information that came out was just incredible. So many questions were answer, sort of answered straight away, and it just got things on track. Because if the first thing you've got to do is start rummaging around hunting googling and everything and sometimes you just want someone to say okay this this is where you go to do this this is who you speak to sort of thing and that is something that i I, i've been through um passing of loved one a couple of times and each time it's that is that just initial what happens now where where do i go
0: Bianca, if I can bring you in um, to talk to us a little bit more. Sea Rider is such an important charity. Could you tell us a bit more about the charity and the support that you provide um, both in hospices and online to patients and families, please?
1: We have uh, in Rider hospices, uh, which might be in your local community. Um, and uh, so they provide end of life and palliative care for um, patients and their families. Uh, part of that is, of course, um, trying to provide people with um, the knowledge and skills to manage their disease as it progresses, and also equipping the family members to deal with that emotional fallout of of seeing and and having someone dying that um, they feel close to, and of course, Also then explaining to them what happens next is, you know, something that Andrew was referring to being that first signpost of, okay, no one has given us a manual on how to do this. Um, It wasn't covered at school. It's not something we learn when we sign up to get a bank account. So how do we, what what should I do? What, What do people do? Um, And uh, yeah, being that first port of call as well for um, those life experiences that we don't get to learn about, uh, which then helps making people those first few steps into either an end of life situation and and being somewhat ready and a little bit more prepared to um, witness and and be present uh, for all of those sights and sounds and sense and those visceral um, experiences people have when someone is dying, um, also preparing the patient for that and being able to support their quality of life going into into palliative care and beyond. And then, uh, of course, uh, our online um, support is anything from um, a personalised grief text support that people can get for up to a year, which is really helpful because it empowers you to make those first few steps by yourself. one of the things we always forget in, in Deaf Dying Bereavement is that we had many losses in our lives, all of us, right? And each of those losses and life challenges equipped us to deal with certain aspects of deaf dying bereavement moving forward. So that bit of equipping has already happened. And I think a lot of services that we provide are there to enhance that resilience, that those existing skills in people. Um, we have a, a an online counselling service, for example, that people can have up to six sessions for. We have an online community where people get peer-to-peer support because often people say, what happens at night at three in the morning when I just stare at the ceiling and hope that the alarm clock will go off and there's no one I dare to ring or message? Uh, and in that online community, someone is always awake. There are 30,000 people, you know, often hanging around around at the same time, um, wanting someone to talk to or wanting to see that someone is experiencing a similar thing to them. We have a, a self-help guide as well because some people, uh, we we know that most people don't really need that more formal support, but they need to be put you know, back on track. Like Andrew was kind of saying, the putting things into, into a way that makes more sense now. Now I know what to do and a self-help guide um, does exactly that, helping people um, making those first uh, important decisions around what they might need, understanding their bereavement more, um, because education and literacy about what's going on, that knowledge gives people a sense of control back that they feel they have lost in their grief journey. So just to name a few, we also have lots of great information pages that just do that normalizing that uh, no one normally gets uh, through life unless they get to a, a, a bereavement situation.
0: Thank you, that sounds like some amazing resources. And as you say, I think the online community, especially um, personal experiences, that, that sounds very real, the, the 3 a.m. wondering if you're the only person who's feeling like you're in that situation. So I think that's an incredible opportunity for people who might want to be able to reach out to someone. It's It's an incredible support. Thank you. So, just to put my perspective on it a little bit, I, I act for people who have lost loved ones to mesothelioma, and act for people who have mesothelioma, and so we have to be very careful to look after ourselves a little bit as well. That that you know we can grieve the loss of our clients, we can really become caught up in the grief of our our clients and what they're experiencing when they lose loved ones. And I think these resources are so important not only for those who are suffering the grief directly, but perhaps that ancillary grief that comes from, from you know, um, I call it looking after. I always think acting is a bit formal, so I look after my clients. One of the things that we look to try and do as part of our claims that we're bringing for our clients is to um, help the families to recover costs incurred by hospices in looking after our clients where they've been supported by the hospices. There was a landmark legal decision and as part of a personal injury claim we we're able to seek to recover the element of the hospice's costs which are funded by charitable no- donations. Since 2018, we have at Owen Mitchell recovered £675,000 in donations to hospices through those personal injury claims, which is a phenomenal amount of money. And we know that nothing by way of compensation can compensate our clients for what they've been through, what their families have been through. But it really does mean a lot to the families of the clients that we look after to see those care costs recover for the hospices, to try and give something back to the hospices who cared so lovingly for their family members hospices provide such a vital support to families and patients when they need it most. And so the costs that we can try to recover as part of the personal injury claim helps to bring a bit of support to the hospices in looking after other patients in the in the future. So for me, that's a really important part of the work that, that we do. Just as a, a final thought then, in terms of, I suppose, a key message from, from everybody on the, the podcast today, if you had a key message to give, um, Jackie, I'll start with you. What would you want to say? What would your key message be? Apart from be kind, because I think that's the one that we say to each other quite regularly.
3: So I, I just want to sort of finish off by saying, you know, my belief is that life and death and moments um, can't be left behind, and that the person is still present, and I am not moving on, but I'm moving forward with them.
0: Thank you. Andrew, if if you had a key message for us, what would your key message
2: be? I think it's no matter how tough and bad things seem at the time, don't ever think you're on your own. There there are people out there who can help, and there are resources. Um, And sometimes it's just you just need a a pointer in the right direction. But there are people there, and I think it's too easy to become overwhelmed yourself. And basically, don't be afraid to ask for help from people and there may not always necessarily be the people you think of
0: thank you bianca if you could give us a final thought
1: yeah that's that's a good one to compress in in a final thought um i think it's probably for people to remember that they haven't lost everything when someone dies that they are still intact you know they still have a life that is full of opportunities and full of choices and full of full of life experiences to be found. And, and often when it comes to brave people forget that for a long time, they forget themselves and they forget what could be ahead. And so as much as lots of different stepping stones and things have fallen off someone's life map, there's also an opportunity now to put new stepping stones on that life map and and find what's what's ahead find that out yourself and even if people don't feel like it straight away and maybe for many months and years to come there will be a time where they start to um, get the pen out and, and start to write their life map again um, and i think that's a really important thing to remember that there's hope and opportunities ahead too
0: thank you Yeah, that is a really powerful message so I want to say thank you to you all. That's it for today. Thank you, Bianca, Jackie, and Andrew for sharing your experiences. We hope you found it insightful. If you'd like to find out more about how we support our clients, please visit our website at owenmitchell.com. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please join us for our next episode. Stay safe.